Y'all, it is hard out there, and I know many of you are feeling it in different ways. For this podcast, I wanted to focus on what's happening around DACA and immigration in general. Um, like many of you, when DACA came down, I was feeling it. I was concerned, upset, just sort of worried about my homies from back in the day, mostly in California, who um, struggled and to fight for the DREAM Act and who were a big part of what came to be the pressure that created the environment for DACA. So like many of you, I turned to my friends, and my friends happened to be Professors Bichet Chun and Jimmy Patino. And what I really wanted to do, and I think we did, is I wanted to sort of blend Jimmy's expertise looking at the deportation regime from a historical perspective and Vichet's current activism around deportee, detainees, uh, yeah, detainees uh, here in Minnesota. And I also just wanted to bring you into just the warmth of our conversations as as uh, men of color just trying to make sense of our world and activate against it and confront power in different ways. So I hope you find this informative, but then also just enjoy the warmth that we have as three folks, that three men, three men of color that know each other pretty well and enjoy the time we spend together. My name is Vichet Chuan. I am a professor at the University of Minnesota, and um, I've also um, been pretty involved with a campaign called Release Minnesota 8, which is um, a campaign organized by family members of um, individuals who were um, detained and um, 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 and have uh, removal orders on them, deportation orders. Morning, I'm Jimmy Patino. I'm assistant professor in the Department of Chicano Latino Studies at the University of Minnesota. Um, I guess my work around immigration comes out of my work as a Chicano historian, um, just immigration being, um, you know, a, a kind of key set of policies that have affected the Mexican origin and larger Latino community through time. Um, so it's in my teaching, it's in uh, my writing and research. Um, immigration played a central role in my book that's coming out in November uh, called Raza Si Migra No. I like the plug, Jimmy, it's good. Yeah, throw it's, that in there. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's the most extensive way I've, I've engaged immigration. Yeah. Um, and really I came to immigration not so much um, out of an interest for that in and of itself, but more my interest is in the struggles and the social movements that came out of um, especially Chicano and Latino communities. And just immigration emerged as one kind of huge barrier to, to enfranchising folks and, and folks struggle for social justice. So, Yeah, and, and I think my hope in this conversation is to sort of develop a dialogue between both of you to sort of expand the perception of how immigration works within community, right? Because I think right. publicly it's often oriented around the, the Mexican, Central American mm -hmm. community. Mm -hmm. And certainly... What Richard's bringing up is the experience of Asian folks within this regime, mm -hmm. but um, just to just to start the conversation, um, in light of what's happened last week with DACA and, and the and Trump and Sessions talking about rescinding DACA, where are we at in terms of immigration changing under the Trump administration from your perspective? Well, I mean, there are changes. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, we can't really, I mean, they're not changes for the better at all. They're um, as dehumanizing as um, the treatment of, um, of immigrants ha have been documented or, um, or those who, um, who are undocumented. Things have only gotten worse, if you could imagine. 
Can yeah. you break down some of the reach out accounts that got worse or were those changes? Well, well, in my in my experience, um, um, in the last few months, there there seemed to be um, something happening um, with with Department of Homeland Security and, and in particular with um, Immigration Customs and Enforcement ICE, where there seems to be some in terms of um, the fight. They're they're just they're they're much more willing to fight. Hmm. They've always been willing to fight, but now they're they're. There, um, there seems to be some t- kind of top-down directives to fight everything and to make everything hard, even for those who um, are fortunate enough to have been granted any kind of relief. They're going to appeal whenever they can. They're, so there's something happening here. Mm-hmm. Um, there's something happening that, that is um, it, it's hard to even say because we call uh, President Obama the deporter-in-chief, mm-hmm. and now we're saying things have actually gotten worse. Mm-hmm. Right? Right. What do you, I mean, what do you Yeah, no, I... So I appreciate that analysis of the present moment because as a historian, I see things in some ways staying the same or just intensifying more mm-hmm. of the same. Um, so I appreciate the nuance in terms of it. Is, there is a degree, I think, of shift in, in, in the current administration that I think I agree, like you said, is just making it uh, much more harder. There's, there's, there are less kind of co-optive mechanisms that are, mm-hmm. you know, bringing some people into the fold, giving some people opportunity. What do you mean by co-optive mechanism? Um, so like, um, you know, kind of the, I mean, the activists in my book use the phrase uh, carrot and stick policies, oh. right? Mm. And so like Democrats, I think, have tended to, and we can use Obama as an example, um, used a mix of co-optive kind of like DACA, bringing some people uh, into the fold. Mm-hmm. It never really solved the problem, but it does put band-aids and give some folks opportunities to gain status, to gain at least temporary relief in some ways. Um, but there was also the stick, right? There was also still more militarization, still more deportations or whatnot. Um, so I think, like Bichette described, um, the current administration is is shifting toward the stick, right? Shifting towards and eliminating any of the kind of, you know, co-optive mechanisms or relief given to struggled for uh, by undocumented folks. So, yeah, that's a big shift. Um, at the same time, yeah, it's it's in the longer durée of the century. Like it's uh, it's more of the same. It's just it's a matter of degree mm. in terms of mm-hmm. um, it's still a regime whether it was you know the last president or this administration. And really, this administration is doing what it said it was going to do, which was target immigrants, target brown folks and black folks and, um, and whatnot. So immigration is one realm where, he's, where I think they're doing that. And I feel like there was a little bit of a misreading about how that would happen, right? Like I think after the Trump one, there was a perception that there would be like mass raids everywhere. But instead what we're seeing is that right. people get picked up when they go to their normal interview with ICE, mm-hmm. um, that there's greater mm-hmm. numbers of checkpoints and reports of checkpoints happening around hurricanes in Houston, those sorts of things. It's actually, it's actually much more benign and, and right. sort of strategically displaced than what people had thought. Like people, I guess people imagine that we just like ICE officers everywhere going into places where undocumented folks would normally work and just yanking them out. But that's just not really happening at all. Mm-hmm. Are you seeing some I, of that, Richard? Or I guess you have something to say. Can I say something real quick? Yeah, just yeah. That, that I think reveals how um, the expansion of the security state under Obama Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He had this expansive kind of, and, and it was, it argued that it was targeted. It was only uh, detaining and deporting folks with records or right. that, that, that had criminal mm-hmm. records or whatnot. So I think 
this administration, the current administration, is using that same mechanism. It's it was already in place when they right. came into when they came into power, um, but going beyond and you know not targeting specific groups and really just deporting and detaining whoever's available whoever yeah. they can get their hands on. Expanding the net, so to speak. So it's both different and but also related to the pre-existing kind of regime that was set up. Yeah, there's this, I mean, I think as a historian, there's, a, there's an appreciation for continuity. Right. And then just how things expand, not how things rupture. Right. Mm-hmm. right. Yeah. And, and, and I remember the Obama administration actually kind of backtracking on some of that with, with the felons, felons not families, and sure. recognizing that felons have families. <laughs> um, and then uh-huh. them realizing that this is actually kind of a problem that the way that, you know, Right, but right, <laughs> but the, but the this new administration has said, no, actually, you had it right the first time, right? Right, right. And actually, we need to go further, right? Sure. So, um, yeah, but 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 I also appreciate what you're saying, and sort of like this kind of longer, kind of like standing tradition of mm-hmm. of deportation of um, basically um, being quite clear about who 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 are members of this mm-hmm. society. Mm-hmm. Um, Maybe things haven't changed that much, right. except they're just a little louder. They're just a little mm-hmm. um, more visible for some people. Right? But it brings me to another thing I wanted to bring up is is the I've been sort of thinking out loud about the idea of how the sort of law and order discourse that was used to criminalize black folks throughout the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, it feels like that's being carried over into immigration, right? Like. Especially, in particular, Trump's discourse around, like, immigrants being rapists, drug dealers, therefore we have to have walls, therefore we have to have more homeland security. Mm-hmm. And again, a lot of that having its origins within the, Trump, the Obama administration, right, to enhance the security state, and obviously after 9-11, creating the Department of Homeland mm-hmm. Security. Mm-hmm. But it's been justified around this, like, notion of criminality for immigrants that wasn't really part of how they talked about us, right. at least larger scale. Right. I mean, I, I, I think there is a long history of tying Mexicans to, to, to criminality, right? There's We can go back to the 19th century with those kind of depictions. Um, but I'm thinking about especially what well, you, you described, like how law and order discourse in the 60s and 70s was used to repress kind of the social movements, particularly of um, the black power movement in the 60s and 70s. And I think, I think as researchers, I think we need to like uh, investigate that some more in, term, in the context of the Chicano movement, uh, uh, other Latino and other folks of color kind of movements that have large migrant populations. Um, on the one hand, I think the border was militarized and like uh, deportations were in, in intensified in the 70s, especially because more folks were coming from Mexico and other places. Mm. Um, and there was a call to, to protect basically quote unquote American labor from these folks for um, taking American jobs or whatnot. That was the official discourse, but I think Underlying that, there, I think there might have been a repressive kind of mechanism to it, too, that's similar to the law and order kind of stuff that we think about with the Black Power Movement. Um, but yeah, we haven't, I don't know if we've, mm. we, need more, we need to do more research and reflection on that, I think. Right, because prior it was a, a nativist sort of jobs discourse. Right. But now it seems to be shifting away from that. Like, they still use that, but that doesn't seem to be like the biggest tone or the biggest megaphone. Right, right. It's from an obser- distant observation, I suppose. Sure. I wonder if they, they use that selectively um, mm-hmm. um, to divide uh, communities of color um, yeah. to, to talk about kind of like jobs this is kind of scarcity sure. right? and um, there are reasons why young African-American men aren't working right you know right um, 
so I, I don't think it's shifting away. I think mm. I think they're I think I think they're just being really smart about it. It's a selective it. conversation. Yeah, I think they're just being mm. really smart about it. Um, this speaks to the tensions in Los Angeles where you and I grew up around black mm. and Mexican folks. And, and I think they're smart to um, uh, uh, kind of to 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 frame the dis- to frame the conversation as a as a Latino problem as a mm-hmm. as a as a brown issue um, because the the fastest. Um, growing um, number of undocumented folks are Asian Americans mm. in terms mm-hmm. of just speed mm-hmm. of growth, mm. um, and Asian Americans are still the are the fastest growing community in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Among all um, other communities, or just generally? St- st- yeah, ethnic communities mm. as 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 a, as a collective, right. Asian Americans are the fastest growing, mm-hmm. um, and um, it's smart on their. On, on, you know, for the other side to, to frame it as a brown issue because mm-hmm. then it doesn't it, it's not visible but it very much is an Asian American issue an Asian immigrant issue mm-hmm. um, there are DACA will affect a lot of undocumented Asian American young Asian American folks mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah that I, so one I want to uh, highlight the moments in the in the 70s and early 80s where uh, particularly black power groups and Chicano movement groups kind of came together and kind of gave a counter discourse to this kind of immigration is a brown issue. Um, immigration is an issue that pits un, you know the high unemployment African American community against the high employment kind of Latino community. Mm-hmm. Um, you know there were um, examples of a group called the Nia Cultural Organization, which was in San Diego that worked with um, a group called the Committee on Chicano Rights that um, had, you know, a Malcolm X kind of yearly Malcolm X kind of uh, celebration march and and had different themes every year where one year it was jobs and they were sure to highlight how the reason why we we, jobs for everybody was the was the theme. Um, But the reason why um, immigrants were here from places like Mexico was because of U.S. investment and U.S. interference in those societies that, um, you know, kind of created chaos in those societies right. for folks to have to right. leave in the first place. So there are, mm-hmm. there is a history of that in terms of like countering this this attempt to use immigration as kind of a wedge issue between different communities of color. Well, and we are in the academy, and I think what's right. what's important about that too is the the lack of resources to continue to distill those questions of why it is that people come to the United States and what sort of things are they fleeing, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Like when I was a PhD student looking at Guatemala, there was maybe, what, 12 in the program and three of us were Latino and I was the only one looking at anything that resembled anything contemporary, right? right? Like most people look at like prior to ni- 1900s or archaeologists or whatever. Right, right. Yeah, yeah I think we have to um, really do a lot of um, unlearning <laughs> because <laughs> because I, I feel like that's a big part of our job right yeah to help right. folks unlearn the things they've been taught their mm-hmm. entire lives and that includes this idea that people want to leave their homes and come to this other place like mm-hmm. people want to stay where they're at they want to stay right. with their community stay with their families they want to they want to stay in a place they know right. and that they're comfortable with they don't want to leave but they have to go yeah. sometimes it's because well, actually, a lot of times it's mm. because the U.S. were messing her up, mm-hmm. messing around um, in, in in their homelands, and um, you know I think people need to get out of this kind of tourist sort of idea of like traveling and like migrating. <laughs> people don't 
immigrants and migrants do not want to leave their homes. Is that how you think it shows up? Like this idea of like, oh, I'm just traveling in the U.S. and hanging out. I think out. I think a lot of um, uh, I, I think a lot of uh, sort of ma- there's a mainstream perspective that you know, of course they want to come here and they're, 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 there's like this choice that that's it's a false equivalent of like well they could stay there they can come here you know. Um, and, and it's not it's not that simple. it's not that kind of dry yeah yeah, yeah but yeah. but people generally do not want to leave and things are um, things are rough enough you know um, so in my case <laughs> I mean refugees I think people have a, a, a better understanding of that but even I guess people who are categorized as voluntary migrants voluntary immigrants I they're not trying to leave their homes either I mean I mean how does that show up in Sure. The work you're doing. Yeah. Um, yeah, I really like uh, challenge the notion of a voluntary migrant. Yeah. I think it's, I mean, that's something that was really prominent in like the sociology of immigration and yeah. over the past 20 years and whatnot, but which meant like economic motivated migrants, right? That are looking for jobs mm-hmm. or, or whatnot. And on the one hand, yeah, there, there's evidence that migrants uh, that come looking for jobs, you know, have some, a bit of capital and a bit of kind of um, ability to, to move around and some innovation in terms of how they're thinking and some creativity and whatnot yeah. that we should recognize. But at the same time, it's, it's, there's a structural contextual context where mm-hmm. there are lack of jobs, there are lack of opportunities and, you know, folks engage the migrant stream, uh, sometimes slowly, the, the, the husband leaves or the, the male right. partner leaves and, and comes back and forth and, um, but yeah, and those that structural context often relates to, uh, you know, U.S. intervention in some way, and broader kind of just the way capital is arranged, uh, in the global South and the global North and whatnot. So, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, like I think I think part of how this how I understand this is I was doing a lot of work with unaccompanied minors and folks seeking asylum from Guatemala, and that's mm-hmm. what I was doing predominantly throughout the, that period. Right. And what we saw was folks trying to Fox News in particular trying to frame these kids as like trying to get papers because Obama said that this and that and what was clearly happening was these youth are trying to get access to their families mm-hmm. right that's why they were coming because a father or another caregiver had left the United States right. to get money and they were left alone in their home countries and they right. wanted to you know be and often they had people them. here already that they yeah. related to yeah right. which and was it, always missing from the official discourse yeah and it wasn't any sort of and it wasn't any sort of like paternalism or or sort of like um generosity from the obama administration allowing them to stay in the united states right. the their attorneys were just confused about how to deal with it mm-hmm. and uh, you know at least for myself i was very effective at getting them asylum granted mm-hmm. right right but it wasn't any benevolence sure know? i don't think it's really come up that often but just to be clear from my perspective Mm-hmm. Working on these cases. Absolutely, yeah. No, and I'm 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 interested to hear more from Bachet around um, how the refugee community um, broadly has like addressed issues of immigrant rights and what kind of discourses mm. exist in the community in that regard. Yeah. Um, one and then two, like I'm aware of like how um, in the Asian American community historically there's been recognition in terms of that they were caught up in this regime. Uh, this immigration regime that's, you know, the first kind of um, deportation-like laws were the Chinese Exclusion Act and were the 1924 Asian kind of Exclusion Mm -hmm. Act and Mm -hmm. um, and and, and then how in the 60s Asian American movement was was, uh, recognizing that U.S. wars is what brought them there and creating kind of a critical consciousness out of that. Mm 
So I'm wondering, how does that look? I'm less familiar with how that looks today, mm -hmm. right, in the Asian American community and in the refugee community. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, that's a, that's a really good point. Like, um, Asian Asians in the U.S. are um, still the only racial group that have actually been um, named in 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 in, in, in um, U.S. immigration law um, to to say stay out right mm -hmm. so what, what jimmy was referencing just right. like, yeah yeah, yeah. Right. they're the only racial group still to this mm -hmm. date right. that, that have been um, explicitly excluded in mm -hmm. immigration mm -hmm. um what does what does that mean it's a racial category what does that mean? it just means that um i think asian americans need to really reflect on that mm -hmm. um at, when when um when they're engaged in these discussions about good immigrants bad immigrants and who belongs mm. um you know i think i think there's a there's really been a whitewashing of this history. So Jimmy's talking about different um, points in U.S. immigration law that have very much targeted Asians as um, mm -hmm. um, unfit or uh, mm -hmm. inappropriate Undesirable. to, 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 to yeah. enter mm -hmm. to this, huh. this society. Um, today it shows up in different ways um, in, in sort of working with um, anti-deportation campaign for, um, for Cambodian folks. Um, Khmer folks from um, Cambodia, some of many of whom um, have actually never set foot in the country because mm -hmm. they were born in um, uh, refugee camps as their uh, families were kind of like on their way elsewhere. Mm -hmm. um, it's it's been a it's a tightrope actually to sort of make sure that we're actually not perpetuating a kind of respectability discourse mm -hmm. that I think it's incredibly um, uh, dumb. <laughs> Um, <laughs> I don't have a better word, <laughs> but, it, but, but, it, but it's, it's, it's destructive to um, actually moving things forward because it divides and it's, it's actually, um, and it's dishonest. Can you break down what respectability discourse means? Uh, respectability just means this idea that the, and, and, and I think DACA is a part of that, it's, it's yeah, a mechanism absolutely. for that, right? There's a tension there for sure. Yeah, um, the, the good immigrants versus bad immigrants, okay. right? Or the people who are deserving versus the people who are not deserving. Right, and it's a very different position to say everybody is deserving. Mm. Right, mm -hmm. people who have committed felonies or have never made a mistake in their life, which is not never true. Um, people right. who have families and children and, and who are U.S. citizens, or people who don't. Everybody is deserving. It's a very different position, mm -hmm. um, and so the tightrope I was talking about is is very much that because refugees, Cambodian refugees, um, are. Um, clearly here because because the U.S. Um, got involved over there, right? Mm -hmm. These are the uh, Cambodian, most Cambodians in the U.S. are products in terms of their, their, their th them having arrived to the U.S. as immigrants um, and refugees of the Vietnam War, right? Uh -huh. These, they're, they're the consequences of the Vietnam War. Mm -hmm. And so um, that narrative, while, while pushing that narrative, we have to sort of be very careful to say that they actually deserve to be, they're more deserving of not being deported or, mm. or, or, mm -hmm. or, or, or citizenship more than, um, more than other other folks. Yeah, let's. Does let's that make sense? Like, what, you know, yeah, it's a, it's yeah, a, it's, it's an yeah. interesting, um, you know, and and you're you're kind of in some ways you play both sides, right? You know, right, right. You know, there's a strategic game being played, and mm -hmm. I think I think in terms of I think I really want to anchor back into DACA the the idea that. 
um, these children are undeserving of the scrutiny of the state because it's their parents' fault that they're here. Right. Like that discourse is incredibly uncomfortable and really difficult to their, like, yeah, deal with. Throwing their parents under the bus, right? Yeah. You know? right. right. Yeah. But it's been really effective, too, because they, they've managed to get a lot of Republicans on their side. But and as, a, as a high cost to that, not, not to be critical of that, because that's, I'm not undocumented, I'm not part of that conversation, but you know, mm-hmm. from the outside, and having come from immigrant parents, it, it's an uneasy thing to sort of absorb and digest. Yeah, I mean, this is this kind of like what you were talking. This is kind of like what Jimmy was referring to, right? And sort of like the, the a kind of long, uh, the sort of longer tradition, right. of a regime, right? And, right. Right. Yeah. No, I, and I think now's a moment to reflect on how successful the DACA Dreamer movement was. It's it's it was eliminated in one kind of fell swoop. Yeah. Um, by one that, that incredibly the, racist attorney general. Right, right. Uh, using all the coded language of, right. of, of that are used against the worst, the bad immigrants, and mm-hmm. applying it to, to, to dreamers and DACA uh, recipients. And so, you know, um, on the one hand, I think DACA was a result of pressure, you know, uh, put on the administration and people of power by, by immigrants, by dreamers, by youth. Um, we can look at it as a success in that regard to give temporary relief to folks um, and kind of as a, you know, it didn't go as far as some folks wanted it to go, but the fact that President Obama did anything was in large part result of, of, of movement activity, of, of activism. Um, at the same time, yeah, that's the cost of, I think, respectability politics, of uh, engaging in the, in the game of uh, I deserve to be here because they don't. And there's always limits to that and there's a history of that that um, um, I think shows over and over again that that's a very limited, it, it's not recognizing the immigration system as a system, as a regime that's reproducing itself. It's seeing, it's, it's seeing it as something that just needs to be tweaked and changed and everything will be okay. And that is, there's too many interests involved in the immigration regime. There's too many uh, large businesses making lots of money off of the immigration regime to, for that to be such a simple kind of formula. Right. And we're talking about uh, private private detention centers right uh, right private detention centers uh, the entire kind of you know employment of immigrant folks to basically be involved with every industry yeah that exists in the US, <laughs> particularly the tourist industry the restaurant the industry the construction DHS. industry yeah. all these things right yeah so well just and like the fundamental respectability of or the dynamics of respectability when it comes to just like the sorts of things that my father internalized right as long as I'm a hard worker right I'll get I'll get my due and I'll mm-hmm. become a citizen and he did right he was effective at that but sure immigrant optimism right mm-hmm. right right it was also a cost to his own like willingness to engage in in the politics of the times right my dad was in the united states in los angeles in the 60s and 70s and mm-hmm. i remember him telling me about that that he was observant and curious but he felt it wasn't his place to engage more deeply into that yeah right that that sort of um um, industry that you're talking about that, that that's making money somebody's making money right mm-hmm. um, reminded me I was on the phone with a person who was detained trying to fight his case and on the other end was me his, his wife and his lawyer and um, all of a sudden um, the, you get that sort yeah. of like hey your time is coming up yeah. and I right. guess the only way to call him was through this other channel in the, in the, in the jail and it was Fifteen dollars for fifteen yeah. minutes, yeah. And, right. but 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 they were working on their case, and they're like, okay, we have to pay it. So pulled out the credit card that was probably already maxed out, right? Right. right. Um, and so I was just like, wow, right? You know, 
and and that mm-hmm. that happens all the time. Right. That happens all a lot of times. It's just like love, um, you know, family members trying to talk to yeah. talk to um, the, you know their their, their loved maintaining ones, maintaining some contact. Yeah. yeah. Um, no, I think areas like that are where that's how the immigration system has changed. In the in the sixties and seventies, activists were concerned just about immigrants being exploited and as as you know farm workers or as you know um, domestic workers or whatnot. But now there's this whole kind of uh, situation created by detaining folks and like um, basically similar to the prison industry just uh, mm-hmm. uh, folks charging for the phone folks charging for the furniture for the beds for the health care of the folks for mm-hmm. or, or whatnot and it's become its own its own kind of internal thing that that uh, I think we need to grapple with too well you know at this point it's one and the same right like a lot of folks were detained in facilities used for other just citizen mm-hmm. folks that are being arrested too like all the immigrant folks were inside there as well right right and limited in the same ways despite yeah yeah but I'm still I'm still thinking about the Chet's comment on how Asian folks have been the only group yeah um, tar- specifically targeted and named right that's and an, so, yeah, that's so, me pretty hard too so one one thing that has me thinking about is is in regards to the Asian American community I mean, that's some like you said, that's something that should be, like, discussed and talked about because... <laughs> the, Might want to bring that up sometime. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's kind of a big deal, yeah. It's I mean, a huge deal. I think there's a... There's because a, the, the banality of evil isn't that specific, you know? Right, right. No, white supremacy in the United States has also, always, I think, been very vehemently anti-Asian. Yeah. And that may get, like, hidden and submerged when we tie immigration to Latino communities, I think, but... To me, that's a reminder that it's there. It's, it's there and it's very it's, present. Yeah. And it com- maybe it comes out in like the example of these, these folks here. Uh, yeah. Uh, Some of the Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. Um, <laughs> you're right. We need to <laughs> keep that in mind. Let's <laughs> elevate that a little bit. Yeah. The yellow people. Let's. Uh, <laughs> uh, you're, you know, you're. I know you think you're the model minority, but right. actually, <laughs> this is actually in like mainstream newspapers. Uh, they're like in the sort of late uh, 19th century. There were some very like uh, ugly depictions of Asians Absolutely. in the U.S. Um, mm. Basically, suggesting that these are people who are inappropriate, unfit, um, will never ever um, assimilate, um, mm-hmm. and, and, and they shouldn't, right? And mm-hmm. which led to things like Chinese exclusion and, and other kind of um, laws that would bar Asian Americans from the U.S. until like, yeah. I believe 65 is kind of like the critical right, right year, right? People historically. Um, Arguably would that explain the migration of uh, Asian folks to Latin America during that same period? Uh, d- during during the, the mid twentieth century, yeah. kind I don't know. I mean, I, huh. I'd be inclined. I, yeah, that that's that's, I, that's yeah. there's something there with that in terms of that they had access to to, to certain countries to in Latin America. More welcoming ports farther south. They were barred yeah. from the United States. Just, yeah, they were ineligible for citizenship for most of the mm. first half of the twentieth century. Right, right, mm-hmm. and um, so what was I going to say? I kind of lost my train of thought. Oh, sorry about that. <laughs> no, but just just this kind of reminder that um, you know some of the some of the major test cases about sort of like who gets who who gets to become a citizen who who gets to pass into citizenship have been Asian Americans right in mm-hmm. in, in U.S. history mm-hmm. um, Ozawa Thine you know basically um, you know uh, these positions um, in which they take up white supremacy however 
unfortunately. Mm-hmm. But but these are Asian Americans who are have been, um, you know, kind of pushing pushing on um, notions of membership and notions of belonging. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we also got to keep that in mind, you know, yeah. you know, um, wanting access to the uh, the right to own property, right? Right. To, you know, the, the right to exploit. Yeah. The right to <laughs> to be an American, right? Right, which, which is, is yeah. in and of itself exploitation. To, yeah, to something else. Yeah. Or the Ozawa and Thin case mm-hmm. were cases Can you say where. More about that? Yeah, yeah, where is that? Um, Ozawa was a Japanese American who basically in the 19 teens um, went to the Supreme Court and argued he was white. Um, he wasn't black, so he was inevitably white, I think mm-hmm. was his argument. And so, yeah, I think what. Yeah. The is suggesting is that in in our communities there are also folks who are down to play the game in terms of trying to get in the club, um, and in nineteen the nineteen teens that explicitly meant didn't work out for to, him. You though. had to be white. Of course, the courts told him, "No, you're not white." <laughs> what did they say he was? Um, they they, they said, "Look at you." <laughs> right, right. No, but what did they argue he was if he wasn't black? Did they just make up a new category? No, they, they just said he's not. He, he was saying that he could be counted as white, right? Yeah. So, so they went to science. Science at the time was oh. the way that, we, that, that race the, was defined. All the you're, eugenic you're, science. You're from Japan, oh and that's God. not that's the Asiatic race, and so you're not that. Mm-hmm. A couple of years, maybe the same year. The same year, just then a few months later. Argued yeah. that he was an Indian. Uh, he was of Indian descent, and he argued, well, science <laughs> says I'm Aryan, <laughs> right? Science says Indians are Aryans, yeah. and so I'm white. And so then the court gave a contradictory kind of response to that was that, well, white people don't recognize you as white, so you're not white either. Mm-hmm. And so it really just showed how whiteness is kind of arbitrary, or at least at the you know, weld of people in power, right? And they can define it however they want to define it to exclude mm-hmm. folks. Mm-hmm. So maybe that also is a good example. Maybe the theme here is like the limits of like yeah. respectability politics yeah. or assimilation mm-hmm. politics mm-hmm. because right. the system always... Is able to like adjust to that, or you know, uh, keep you out if it wants to keep you out. Yeah, mm-hmm. and then and, and um, you know, he 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 may indeed be Aryan, but right, but, scientifically, but, it said yeah, it was. he may indeed be Aryan, but under the common man's definition of, of what <laughs> right, that was a, a white person a looks like, right? Mm-hmm. The common sense, common man definition. You're not white. I guess they, they didn't have Ancestry.com where you just put a right. percentage. <laughs> Whatever it is that you think you are. And even if they did, I, I don't think he was going to get that. I don't think he was ever going to pass no. it. You know? um, and so, um, yeah, yeah, I mean, something to... Because uh, what's interesting is that these individuals, they, 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 were, they weren't like trying to say, hey, this is wrong to deny us the, the, uh, the right to, you know, the, the opportunity to naturalize or pass in this citizenship. Mm-hmm. This is wrong. This is not, un- they're not even saying it's unconstitutional. Right. What they're trying to argue is that we're white too. Right. Let us in, you we're, know. We're part of the game. And that's a problem, right? Mm. <laughs> you know. No, and that in Mexican origin and, and Latino and Latino communities too. I mean, right. Mexicans yeah, did, wrote an article did about have that. Yeah, legal access to whiteness because of the the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, and that gave citizenship to Mexican origin people. And in 1848, when that was signed, to be a citizen, you you had to be white. And so, so yeah, Mexican Americans played the same game and attempted mm-hmm. to. And and we got to put it in context too. There, this was a moment of intense segregation. This was a moment of violence, uh, racial violence. And so, 
there are real pressures that lead folks to kind of engage in respectability assimilative you know assimilationist politics well and i'd say too that those those ideas also take advantage of the of the inbred sort of hostility towards indigenous folks in in mexico right like sure. it's not like right. it's an invented idea for mexicans in the united states it's, right. it's bred from that same hostility right absolutely and it just carries over and, and it shows up differently right because we're in the united states but it's from there right Right. I would think. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I guess another piece of it, too, is that, like, um, depending on where you are in the landscape of the world, you also get preferential treatment, right? Like Cuban-Americans in the United States, Cubans in the United States, uh, folks from, at least, I, I'm pretty sure, predominantly Asian countries that get H-1B visas to do technology work for Facebook or whatever, right? Right, right. The, the system still finds ways to mm-hmm. get the folks that they want doing the work that they want. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Capitalism, yeah. Capitalism still a playbook that <laughs> it's that, still that, that, everything. That's, that's kind of effective. <laughs> there's still there's still two oh. rules, right. that, you know, exemptions, right, right. carve-outs. And I think one way I explore this in my classes is, um, especially around the notion of quote unquote Latino and Latina as a pan-ethnic kind of mm-hmm. identity, is that there's a diversity of ideological kind of uh, tendencies in different national communities and in particular the Cuban Cuban American community has been much more conservative uh, I think has higher income rates than like than than white folks um, and kind of the, the the fact that they were recognized as refugees in kind of the Cold War era gave them all these opportunities mm-hmm. gave them all this infrastructure and whatnot and so they have a very different politics that's really at odds with say you know Chicano politics or Puerto Rican politics in the U.S. and whatnot. Um, so I'm, I'm wondering if, if that yeah. similar issue kind of is, you know, plays out similarly in, in the Asian American community. Yeah, because mm-hmm. not many folks from Latin America get refugee status. Right, mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. That's interesting, yeah. So Cubans are like white, right? Cubans right, they're like also, the white, I mean, literally white. like the first, like, you know. And then the, they're elites too, right? The, the, the very right. first, the first folks came wave. with yeah. resources. Yeah, kind of means. They, they were the, the, the most successful capitalists of the island, right? Mm-hmm. right in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah. That's, I, mean, I mean, I think there are some kind of um, similarities in terms of the tensions between, um, there's kind of ethnic tensions between lo- more longer standing Asian American communities, mm-hmm. um, Chinese, American, Korean, um, and certainly the Japanese, mm-hmm. um, with, Newcomers, right? With with folks who, who who made who in the eighties in the early eighties who were refugees, um, but didn't have that sort of tr- tradition, didn't have resources, didn't have Chinatowns, didn't have that right. kind of. Um, now they have a traditional struggle, but it was it was a different kind of struggle. And I mean, they were brown. <laughs> right. A lot of these mm-hmm. folks were brown. Right. These were brown Asians coming to the mm-hmm. to the. Um, to um, to the U.S. Um, and um, kind of complicating what people understood as like Asian American, mm-hmm. like like right. like literally physically, like their, just their presence complicated that, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and we're starting to see this in our like sort of classes, right? When we teach, sure. when we teach, and also within the faculty, right? right. Like folks who aren't um, who traditionally have not been here are now here. What right. do we do, <laughs> right? Right. right? You know. How does this change kind of the, the questions that, that Asian American studies asks yeah. or like the framework it kind of looks at? Or, yeah. and, I, and I wonder if these tensions, I'm assuming they play out in, in like activism in terms, and again, going back to like immigrant rights activism, like how do, these, how do the tensions like play out? Uh, they play out in activism in terms of like what, what people choose to engage in and right. like sort of what, what people prioritize as 
um, um, as the, the pressing issue to, to activate against. Mm-hmm. They play out, I imagine, you know, I mean, I imagine in your, in your life as a sort of writer, as a historian, like right. um, Chicano historians coming up, right. <laughs> you're going to choose to different, focus on different things, you know, sure. to like highlight certain, a different kind of, um, to offer a different analysis of history, <laughs> you right. know. Right. Um, and, and as a Cambodian American professor, I've certainly done that, um, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so well, and I think at least growing up in LA, I would just remember that there always being a lot of tension between like South Asian folks and like Cambodian versus Chinese folks, Cambodian versus Japanese folks, mm-hmm. and then just appreciating the colonial the colonial mapping that happened in Asia, right? Mm-hmm. And how that shows up in the way people interact, or how they ended up uh, migrating to the United States, or where they ended up living, or who cooperates with them, or who interacts with them, who deals with them, whatever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, for sure, for sure. I think. Um... Yeah, I think it's <laughs> I think Asian Americans are such a pain in the ass to ourselves sometimes, <laughs> you know. You know, um, you know, I I've rom- I tend to romanticize like this kind of um possibility, right? This this um possibility for a collective a, a collectivity mm-hmm. that has never really been there, right? Mm-hmm. And I think and then like sort of South Asians, you know. Um right throw another wrench into it you know mm-hmm. a lot of this is like who a lot of this identity stuff right mm-hmm. like who who's asian american right? right cambodians have asked that question people have asked that of cambodians are, are you asian american right? right you know right. Um, yeah so what does that look like <laughs> no i'm just thinking that reminds me that like, well, of course in the in the latina latino community yeah. like what that means is is yeah, depends tough. on who's defining it you know yeah, uh, right. uh, pan-ethnic terms are useful for the government to like classify us and manage us um it's there's an amazing book by arlene davila called latinos inc that looks at how uh, it's a great marketing tool to like homogenize a group and and sell stuff to them and tell them what they're supposed to like and and whatnot through these <laughs> kind of marketing research kind of things um, but then there's this, what you're suggesting, this insurgent kind of politics that yeah. defines it around the shared experience of like being racialized by the yeah. immigration regime. Mm-hmm. And that's, yeah, maybe that is aspirational, but it's I'm, I'm still digging it. Like, I'm still, like <laughs> I'm, I'm still on that, but it's really aspirational. <laughs> well, sure. it's, yeah, and these, these labels are destructive because it puts us in a box. Right. I mean, I remember when I was in college, right, I do my little like Latino people's retreat and I'm like, you did a Latinos yo, people retreat. Yeah, and like, yo, I'm poor from LA. Like, y'all are from like Connecticut and stuff. I don't relate to you at all. Mm-hmm. Right. I don't know how to talk classes, to you. Classes, yeah, classes right. big, right? You know, yeah, not, yeah. Right, right. No, and in that, and also to complicate that vision of like this unity, right? There's class differences, there's gender dynamics and sexuality dynamics within our communities that. We need to really grapple with and like, you know, um, indigeneity, Afro-ness, indigeneity, like, blackness, all these things yeah. that are that are really important um, to recognize that we live in like heterogeneous communities mm-hmm. and like building solidarity doesn't mean eliminating those differences. Right. But like somehow working through them and mm-hmm. highlighting yeah. them and giving weight to them and and, and all that. And so and I guess not confining um, ourselves to the language of the state, too. Right. Right. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think a lot of what we're discussing here, I'm thinking about how the shift from specifically, of the shift in immigration law from specifically targeting Asian folks, mm-hmm. again, the only group that was mm-hmm. overtly named, the shift towards this more, you know, um, 
you know, benign language of, of illegal alien, right? That became like a term, a bureaucratic kind of way of identifying who's supposed to be here and who's not supposed to be here. Uh, distinguish the respectable and the, the, and the disposable. Right, but it was fluid and ambiguous enough. Yeah, it, be, it, it became, you know, deeply associated with Mexican, right? It's, a, it's a basically a racializing term. Yeah, yeah. Historians argue that that uh, means Mexican, basically. But at the same time, I think it is ambiguous enough for folks in power to target certain groups. And, and I'm thinking now, like post, post-DACA, we're talking about the post-DACA moment now, I mm-hmm. guess, is undocumented folks who are vulnerable mm-hmm. are, I've, I've seen them on campus. They're African, they're Asian, yeah. they're, they're Latino, mm-hmm. they're coming from all kinds of places. And so how to, as, as kind of a community, uh, and again, I'm, I'm, I, I was born in the U.S. I'm privileged enough to have citizenship and be protected in mm-hmm. some ways. But how do, I think a question, an intellectual question is how do, and a political question is how do undocumented folks kind of work through difference, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because there is, it is a diverse group of folks. Mm-hmm. And um, how can we create some sort of solution that recognizes, that doesn't buy into the good immigrant, bad immigrant kind of um, respectability politics? Um, but still highlights, you know, all these different experiences, right? Because mm-hmm. uh, I want to highlight, too, there are black immigrants as well. Sure. Are, mm-hmm. um, and again, this group, the Nia Cultural Organization and the Committee on Chicano Rights in the late 70s and early 80s, really, that's they found solidarity in that across the kind of black and brown difference, right? Because Nia said, you know, we're just as concerned with the immigration regime and how it treats Haitians and how it treats, you know, African migrants and mm-hmm. how it treats Jamaican migrants or whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I think that's a that's a challenge too to think more broadly mm-hmm. and um, mm-hmm. across difference in terms of immigrant rights. Yeah. Well, yeah, and it's and it's really hard from the activist perspective. It's really hard to 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 layer into these complications when people want just an immediate solution to their immediate problem, right? How do we right. hold that the tension of just solving a problem that's in front of us and like complicating enough to sustain something that creates greater change? Right. Right. And, uh, yeah. I mean, there's a material reality for a lot of folks, like the, the, the folks, the DACA folks. There's a material reality that's under threat, right, for right. them. That, right. It's a very real, think, urgent That thing. I think we have to yeah. appreciate. And when they may, the, the, <laughs> the time that we, um, the time and study that we generally dedicate to understanding something deeply to, you know, mm-hmm. um, I don't think they're, I don't, I don't think people are going to be afforded those same things when they just have to mobilize. Right. Um, and so it's, it's, I think it's a scary time. You know? Yeah, and I do want to highlight, too, how, um, well, just, uh, what was that, last Tuesday, the, uh, mm-hmm. the marches that were in response to, mm-hmm. to the groups like Navigate that are here in town yeah. um, articulated something to the effect of, you know, DACA wasn't enough anyway. It was li- very limited. I mean, we're concerned with and we're going to protect DACA folks and, like, demand mm-hmm. that they get what they were promised. At the same time, this is an opportunity to eliminate all forms of deportation yeah. or eliminate all forms dialogue, of... Yeah. Right, and open a dialogue to, like... Well, how to do that. ...finish the project of uh, basically, you know, eliminating the system that targets certain people for where they were born. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's a good place to end. Okay. Yeah. Is there anything else you want to throw in there? No, that's good. Thanks for having us. Yeah, yeah appreciate the conversation. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs>